0: Welcome to The Expressionists, the podcast exploring how idioms connect us with the past and to each other. I'm Helen Rydstrand. And I'm the Rosenman. And today we have a very special episode for you. We're releasing this episode on the 26th of January, and here in Australia, this date has been both celebrated and mourned for 230 years. It is the date that the First Fleet landed at what is now known as Botany Bay here in Sydney beginning the invasion and colonisation of this land by the British Empire and generations of trauma, persecution and cultural oppression for the Indigenous people who were here first. Officially, today is known as Australia Day and is a public holiday around the country many call it Invasion Day. And given that we have long been interested in learning more about the hundreds of languages spoken in Australia long, long before English arrived, we felt that today was the right opportunity to celebrate those languages, their voices and cultures. So, to mark the day, we invited two very special guests on the show and considering they know much, much more about the subject than we do, you'll be hearing much more of them than of us. Our Australian listeners might be familiar with our first guest's voice.
1: I'm Daniel Browning. I'm the producer and presenter of Away. I'm an Aboriginal man, a Bundjalung man from the far north coast of New South Wales uh, with many different clan relationships all over southeast Queensland and and northern New South Wales. In my current role, I produce a podcast called Word Up, which is all about Aboriginal languages and reviving and uh, maintaining them.
0: Our second guest is an expert on Indigenous Australian languages and is especially well known for her work in reviving the language or languages of the Sydney area.
2: I'm Professor Jacqueline Troy. I'm the Director for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at the University of Sydney. I'm responsible for developing the university's research strategy across the whole university, irrespective of which discipline, so whether it's engineering or visual arts or medicine, uh, linguistics, I'm helping the university to develop its program of research so that we can support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in their aspirations into the future.
3: Naturally, we started out by asking both our guests about their favourite idioms in Aboriginal languages.
2: (laughs) One of the ones that always makes me laugh is that um, the Aboriginal people, in observing these first fleet marines in particular, exploring the country in and around Sydney, as they'd go through the dense bush, they'd be wearing their full kit. They would have a big, heavy military pack on their back. They'd be in their full uniforms. Of course, by the end of the three or four years of the First Fleet, those uniforms were in tatters and their shoes were worn out, the poor things. But the, these big packs they'd wear on their back as they'd go through the bush would catch them and cause them to fall face first into the ground. And the Aboriginal people used to laugh. I mean, we love a joke. You know, this is black comedy at its best, really. And um, they used to call the people guninbata, which is guninbata. Guna is feces. All over Australia, you hear people saying, oh, guna, meaning. Shit, basically. So these were eaters of feces, so shit eaters. <laughs> so that was one of the first words for watching us, was onion <laughs> butter. And um, another one is the effect of the hot burning sand on my eye, mari mai, which appears to be copulate. My eye is copulated, basically, because so the word for copulate and the word for heat are the same word. Literally, my eye is fucked (laughs) and it just sounds so modern. (laughs) (laughs) It shows the humour, too, of Aboriginal people. Then, as it is now, people love irony. They love to have a bit of a joke with each other, not a mean joke. We're not about humiliating or bullying people. We just want to have fun and live our lives and, and um, be people with everybody
3: else. Daniel's favourite is We Arise from the Mother's Heartbeat, which is an idiom he learned from Bruce Pascoe, who is an Aboriginal man of Tasmanian, Bunurong and UN heritage and a renowned writer, essayist and historian.
1: The heartbeat, I think, is in the word Jungarong which is the, um, the mother's heartbeat. We all rise in the mother's heartbeat and I think it has something to do with you and country about a particular feature, the landscape, um, perhaps a cleft in a rock or something where the mother, in a kind of supernatural way, where the mother resides and that all men and women, we live from the mother's heartbeat. We come from our mothers. Uh, I think it's a beautiful sentiment. It's obvious we all come from the mother's heartbeat, but when you think about it, it's an invitation to live your life with that consciously, to live your life like, we all have this in common. Our connection is the same, isn't it? We all rise from the mother's heartbeat.
3: This idiom reminded me of another one I heard in an episode of Word Up with musician Lou Bennett. It was an affectionate term meaning, my dear child, and one of the first sentences she remembered learning as a child. She said her grandmother and mother and aunties would say it to her and her sister and cousins.
1: Yeah. Apologies to Lou Bennett for the Yoda Yorta mispronunciation. Dominini Yalka. Dominini yalka. Dear my child. I think literally Domma Nini Yalka. Yalka being child, I think in Yoda Yorta. Yorta. Um, she's got another one, which is Waka Niniana which means where are you going? Like a question. Mm. Um, or maybe not, like what are you doing? And I think she talks about in relation to a question that you might ask every Australian. You might ask that of the country. Where are we going? Wakan in the And I think she's actually used it in songs that she's written. Retaining language through song. You know, song is an incredible way to retain language. And that's what a lot of our singer-songwriters are doing at the moment. Um, she's got another beautiful phrase. Lou really believes that it's not individual words that have the power. And I think you, you guys would probably agree with this. It's in the expressions, it's in the terms, in the idioms. Um, She's got another one, wukuk, delkuk, murpuk, which, again, apologies to Lou, that means give good spirit. So, you know, you can all kind of appreciate what that might mean, you know, be good. <laughs> Just live your life Gently.
3: Talking to Daniel, I came to feel something I couldn't quite put my finger on, but it was a sense of a strong connection between the language and the land. I put this idea to Jacqueline Troy.
2: Aboriginal people say that we don't own the land, the land owns us. So that's a very typical thing said all across Australia. The things that distinguish our languages are what is very specific to our countries. So in Australia, we have about 407 languages is the latest estimate being done by researchers who are looking at the, if you like, genetic history of our languages. Um, But the things that change dramatically are words for local plants and animals, the kind of artifacts that people would make, because you have, you know, we're snow people, we're, we're ice mob, as some people say, high country, alpine people. So... We had a need for a toolkit that helped you to live in that kind of country. You know, up in our country, the vegetation is very different, Um, the subalpine and then the alpine fields are very, very full of things like mosses and lichens. So our knowledge about those sorts of plants is highly developed, which you wouldn't get for people, if you like, out in very much the desert countries of Central Australia, because while there are mosses and lichens there as well, it's not it's not the main vegetation. But we wouldn't know about great big river red gums, we know about snow gums, you know. So your language is part of the embedding of you in your country. And then the stories of country also, the names of ancestral figures, the songs that we sing about our country, the stories that we tell, the history of our families and indeed the history of, you know, the invasion of our countries is different everywhere. So all of that local knowledge is held in the language. And, you know, when a language disappears, all that knowledge that person has goes with them, unless they've had the chance to pass it on to the next generation. And this is the tragedy of what's been happening with our languages, is that people have been passing on without the opportunity to share that language the country and the language and the people are forever connected and while ever there are the people, you know, looking after the country and the country looking after the people, then that cycle goes on and the language is absolutely an intrinsic part of understanding how to live in country and how to care for country and then country can care for us, you know.
3: We learned from Daniel Browning how place names in Aboriginal languages are deeply related to the land and are less about ownership and more about function.
1: In Dharug, the language of the uh, greater Western Sydney and the, and the Blue Mountains, Parramatta, a very well-known place in, in Western Sydney, is actually a more generic word, which means a place where the eels cross. So not necessarily the place Parramatta or Baramatta, but a more generic term for this is where the eels cross in the water. It's Bar-a-mata. and You know, another example is where I come from, it's a little village called Fingal, uh, just near Point Danger on the border with Queensland. And the place there was called Pooningbar or Buningbar or Buninibar. And that means the place of the echidna. Well, further up the road near Tallerudger Creek in Queensland, there's also, I've seen postcards which have... Bar or Buningba, place of the echidnas, because this is where the echidnas were. So the idea that Aboriginal people went around naming specific places, specific things, other than for their generic meaning, I'm not sure is true.
0: We also had a chat with Daniel about some of the politics surrounding using Aboriginal names or words to name new developments here in Sydney.
1: When they named the new precinct here in Sydney, Barangaroo, there's a lot of debate about whether you should ever name uh, an Aboriginal place after a person, Barangaroo being the second wife of Benelong, And she was an incredible warrior. She was a fighter. Like, she would not be happy. She would never have sold out, you know. She just, that wasn't in her nature. So a lot of Aboriginal people from Sydney were most upset that Barangaroo had been chosen for the name of that particular place. And, you know, social housing was being, was being reclaimed um, and this multimillion dollar developments and no Aboriginal person could afford to live there. How she would feel about that?
0: One important term that has already come up speaking to both Jacqueline and Daniel is the term country, which has special resonance for Aboriginal Australian culture. And it's one that I've always wondered about. So I asked Daniel if he could tell me a little bit about its history.
1: Country is so interesting because to describe my country, to give a sense of ownership and of a specificity, you know, that first happens, I think, in, in 1843, certainly first recorded use in the newspapers. And a man from the Botany Bay region uses it to say, all this, my country, you know, with a sweep of his hand, all of this is my country. In English, that's not a common usage. So he enlarged the meaning and you know, successively over the years we, we all start to think about country as, as being a particular place. My country, your country, and I, you know, I can't remember a time when I didn't use the term in that way. It certainly become part of, of, of Aboriginal English, an important part of Aboriginal English.
3: I was curious if Daniel grew up speaking the Bunjilung language.
1: Certainly not. You know, I come from a part of the East Coast, which was, you know, first sighted by Cook. He came past the far north coast of New South Wales named Mount Warning, which is near Wollomba, and Point Danger. And my country is between those two points, between Mount Warning and Point Danger. Kind of interesting between Warning (laughs) and Danger. What we had was just words to describe... Uncomfortable things. It was a polite language, a a polite way of speaking to people so they didn't know what you were talking about. So, words for your genitals, words for your bodily functions, euphemisms essentially. We used our language in a kind of euphemistic way. I wasn't allowed to, it wasn't passed on, but certainly in, we're going back to my great grandmother's generation, her sisters, spoke the language. So we're talking about someone who was born in 1907 and died in, died in 2007, my aunt. She wouldn't tell us about that language for a very good reason, and that was they were discouraged from speaking it. And that is why language is lost, because in the face of something inexorable like English, uh, Aboriginal people are going to start speaking English uh, and using their own language in private. And that's what... I remember hearing is that the elders would talk about how they would remember certain words or they would understand what, what the elders were talk, their elders were talking about, but it was used as a private language. It was code um, when they didn't want to be heard or didn't want to be understood. And also it's a kind of it's passive resistance, isn't it? You speak your own language in order to to not tell the government or the Gungeble, the police what you're doing. And this is in an era when children were taken from their families. So language is very powerful, isn't it? I mean, the right to speak it is very powerful, and I think all Aboriginal people f- have a sense of that.
0: Jacqueline didn't grow up speaking her language either, but a few years ago she began learning it. I asked her what that was like.
2: It's an incredibly emotional journey. I, When I first stood up in public and simply said, I am Nyamichi, which is my clan name, myameh Midong, i am of the Nyamich clan i i it hit me so hard that i was actually using my language speaking in my own language being narigu in my own language that i just broke down and wept and i was at a, a conference i was a keynote speaker I was in front of hundreds and hundreds of people and it was just this kind of i don't know maybe a mixture of grief and relief that I could stand up and say, here I am. If I really unpack what this means to me and to speak my own language, to be able to be Nārugu in Naragu without having to use English, it's now something I really want to do personally. I found a song about our people from 1834 written by the Monero women and recorded by an explorer, (laughs) um, Stefan Lotzki, who is Polish and was going through my country in the early 19th century, And the song is translated as unprotected race of people, unprotected all are we. That's how it was translated. And it was a song of the Monero women saying, you know, why is this happening to us? And that's so early. You wouldn't even think that our country had had much impact by then, but it was. So in some ways, speaking my language is like giving voice to all of that loss, but all of the future as well, who we will be into the future.
0: Jacqueline has also been involved in a lot of work in helping to reawaken other sleeping Aboriginal languages. I asked her if others have shared her experience as well.
2: Many years ago in the late 90s, um, I did a a survey for the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander commissioners of the language ecology of New South Wales and I travelled all over New South Wales and people said, look, you know, there's nothing left and then as you know, as they were saying that they'd then start to think about their language and then many times people would turn and address each other in their own language, which was a real a shock. So these people then realised, of course, you know, that as I'm asking them they're saying there's no language left. In fact they're using language. And then they would say To me, look, actually language is more important to us than housing. It's more important than food. It actually is who we are because to be able to say what you want to say in your own language is a most remarkable experience, you know. It gives you back your identity. It helps you to articulate who you are and what really means something to you and to also share all this cultural information.
3: And it's a fascination with that wealth of cultural information in the language that inspired Daniel Browning to start his podcast, Word Up.
1: I'm fascinated by Aboriginal languages. Those that are sleeping and those that are awake, those that are spoken widely. Look, I think my fascination is how it describes a way of life, how it describes Aboriginal people, how it describes our relationships with each other, how it describes the world as we saw it. Um, and how it describes the country that we live in. Um, I'm fascinated that every part of the country already has a name in an Aboriginal language. The place where we're standing today has an Aboriginal name. Why don't we know it? I mean, that's what drives me is this, this desire to uncover what's already here in this country. I think we can know the country better if we speak more Aboriginal languages.
0: Jacqueline Troy's groundbreaking work on the Sydney language illustrates Daniel's point beautifully. In 1994, she published a book called The Sydney Language, based on the manuscripts from what's known as the First Fleet Period between 1788 and 1792 as well as some documents from the 19th century. But she did tell us that actually they become less reliable indications of the Sydney or Darug language proper, because Aboriginal people from all over were moving towards Sydney because, as she put it, there was so much interesting stuff going on, and those people brought their own languages with them, and you ended up with a kind of pigeon between various Aboriginal languages and English so that everyone could understand each other in this new fledgling melting pot kind of society.
2: I took these old documents that were produced because Arthur Philip, the first British governor of New South Wales, who led the invading fleet. I call it an invasion. I don't think there's anything to be cute or coy about calling it anything else. They came here to take over the country. Last time I checked, that kind of thing meant invading. So they arrived with instructions from the British monarch to learn the language, the local language, and conciliate the natives to, those were the exact words used, conciliate the natives to the um, British basically taking over their country. So these first fleet officers in particular, who were already multilingual people in the late 18th century, anybody who was educated, and they all were, were able to speak at least Several European languages. They also studied ancient Greek and Latin as part of their normal studies. And many of them had also seen action, in inverted commas, in India and in the Americas. So they were experienced with other cultures outside European cultures. And one man in particular, William Dawes, uh, who was the protege of Sir Joseph Banks, was a particularly brilliant linguist and language learner. He used his knowledge of ancient Greek, which is a language that works in a very similar way to the Aboriginal languages of Australia. So he used his knowledge of ancient Greek as he was learning this local language to write the language down. And he put his knowledge, into three little moleskin notebooks.
3: And if I could just pause to insert a delightful factoid here. Jacqueline told us that Dawes notebooks, which of course she's seen firsthand, are almost identical to the moleskins that are very trendy today.
2: The notebooks contain a description of the sounds of the language, a lot of vocabulary, but also verb paradigms, so setting up how the word is declined, if you like, So we've got this wonderful set of information about the language of Sydney and I was able to use that information to work out how the sound system worked, thinking also about what we know about other languages in the same family as the Sydney language, the Palmer Newman group of languages. Once I would sort of worked out the basic sound system, I was able to take that information about the meaningful units of sound and work out what are the meaningful units of meaning, if you like, so how do these sounds come together to create words, what we call words, so the morphology of the language, which is the basis of the grammar. So you can actually see the people learning, and and there are notes saying, I ask, um, for example, Bacigurang, who was one of the um, key people who features in the Doors Notebooks, a young woman called Bacigurang, who particularly had a, um, a language learning relationship with William Dawes. She taught him her language and he taught her English. But you'll see in the notes where he's checking. um, I, I asked the girls about, he'll say, about this particular sentence and how they constructed it, and they, re- they corrected me and said, no, you say it this way. So you can actually see the language learning process going on and the language analysis process going on.
3: Me again, just want to insert another little fact here that I really loved. Jacqueline told us that the notebooks are actually the second iteration of Dawes' work. When he was working with Aboriginal scholars, he first made notes on slate because paper was such a scarce commodity in the First Fleet period. Turns out they'd prioritised things like food and farming equipment on those first boats, which makes sense, but it's just not something you'd really think about.
2: But those notebooks are still held in in England and it would be wonderful if they were here because even though we've got a a copy of them that many of these early documents for Australia were copied, you know, photographed, microfilmed. So it's old technology, very old technology now, and was sent out to Australia. But it's never the same as being able to look at the original. Very good facsimiles health and there is a website, the William Doors website, so anyone who's interested can go and have a look at that website. But it's still difficult to really easily get access to to examine those notebooks. There's nothing quite like looking at the original. Uh, And they are the first description of an Aboriginal language of Australia, written down in the form that we now use when we're, you know, being scholars or community are trying to get their language going again. Um, Written texts are now absolutely critical. Of course, there are no early recordings because that technology hadn't developed, no photographs, no film. So for a lot of other Australian languages, we have those kinds of resources, but we don't have that for this language. So these are the holy grail, if you like, of Australian languages.
0: Like Jacqueline, Daniel highlighted how Aboriginal people have always been active participants in sharing and helping to record their languages and cultures.
1: As long as they've been recording devices, Aboriginal people have been giving their language, sharing their language. Um, have we always had access to it? No. Are we increasingly getting access to it? Yes. There's already a name in language for everything, everything on the continent. Every place, every river, every mountain, every hill. But Most importantly, every relationship. So we need to kind of be conscious of that and do what we can to to make sure that people are encouraged to speak their languages. And, you know, we, everyone can be a part of that. There's a very general invitation in the Word Up series, in the Word Up podcast, to speak a word from an Aboriginal language. And that's really generous when you think about it. Like, whoa, you know, you guys had your languages taken away from you, but here you are fronting up saying, I want to share my language with you, despite everything and I think that's an extraordinary act of generosity. And I always get a bit of a kind of a lump in my throat when I'm sitting opposite someone and they're sharing their language. I mean, I'm sitting in this studio with the microphone off. It's quiet as a mouse. So they're, you know, looking at me and sharing their language. And, you know, sometimes it can be really, it's actually pretty moving. It's Sometimes it's funny, but it's always moving because they're sharing something about them. So there's something embodied about it all. There's something embodied about sharing a language is something embodied about listening to someone speak to you in their language. It's not a book. It's not, it's not a dictionary. It's just an invitation to, to listen.
3: And that generous invitation to listen is something that Jacqueline noticed in the Doors Notebooks on both sides.
2: We have these wonderful scholars who came to Australia to invade the country <laughs> to thank for knowing about how that language worked at that time at the point of the invasion. I also would have to say we've got a lot to thank the wonderful scholars from the Sydney Aboriginal community who involved themselves in this research and taught the first fleet officers how to speak their language. Not only taught them how to speak the language, but also helped them to understand how how that language worked so that they could put down the beginning of a grammar and a, a very impressive vocabulary.
3: And the generosity of the Aboriginal people extended well beyond the exchange of knowledge.
2: That's what this mob in Sydney did. They, they incorporated these people who came in. So, another thing people did was everybody swapped names. Arthur Philip and Benalong actually exchanged kinship terms. Benalong gave Philip the name Father Biana, and he taught Philip to say, You can call me son, Duru. So, they were Biana and Duru, father and son, which is a very intimate kinship connection. So, just like people do now all over Australia when non-Aboriginal people join our communities, where skin names particularly are still used, the systems are still intact, Aboriginal people give non-Aboriginal people skin names, so kinship names, so that you become part of the community. So back to that generosity of spirit, Aboriginal people were very generous.
0: We were both touched as well by the generosity of Daniel and Jacqueline in sharing their time, experience and knowledge with us.
3: Jacqueline and Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on The Expressionists. We really appreciate it.
2: I'd like to say thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about our wonderful Australian languages and let's all get using them.
3: We would love that. Absolutely. So that's it for this episode of The Expressionists. We know it was a little bit off our beaten track, but we hope you enjoyed it and learnt as much as we did. This episode is extracted from two much longer interviews with Daniel Browning and Jacqueline Troy, and if you would like to hear them in full, and I highly recommend them, you can if you're a subscriber on Patreon. We'll be posting this as special content for our Patreon subscribers. So those of you out there, make sure you check your special feed, and those of you who aren't consider signing up to support us of course if financial support is not in the stars for you right now there are other ways you can help us out head to your podcast player and leave us a review or simply tell a friend you think might enjoy the podcast and if they don't know how to podcast grab their phone and do it for them As always, you can stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter like Caitlin did, a lovely listener who told us about a great book full of idioms she picked up at a secondhand bookshop recently. We love to hear from you guys, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can also always send us a voice memo if you've got something good to say, and if it's good enough, you might even hear yourself on the show. That's it from The Expressionists. I'm Olivia Rosenman.
0: And I am Helen Rydstrand.
3: And we'll see you next time. Bye.